We read God's Word and uh, see what the Lord has for us this morning. Um, we had, I had a real special treat earlier this semester. We have uh, a Bible study for international students. I'm with RUF International, and we work with international students at George Mason University. And we host dinners and discussions weekly um, that are attended by the international students where we welcome them and, and discuss, uh, give them opportunities to discuss Christian theology or Christian viewpoints of the gospel. And those that are really interested and they want to study the Bible, we have a Bible study on Thursday night. And so this semester we, we had about 14 students that, that wanted to explore the Bible on Thursday night. And we met for about three weeks. And we're going, starting in Genesis and slowly moved through Genesis looking at the, the promise of the coming Redeemer, of the Rescuer, and how that would be fulfilled. And so about the third week, we had, we had basically, we divide, had the girls divided in one group in another room, and the guys were um, in one room, and it was myself, another American volunteer, and uh, some Vietnamese students, some Korean students, Nigerian students, and Chinese students. And we were about 30 minutes into the Bible study, and two Japanese students knocked on the door, and they were very polite. They said, uh, is it possible that we could join you? We said, of course. So they came in, and uh, one of somebody said, do you have a Bible? And so uh, one of the Korean students grabbed a Bible, uh, one of the Vietnamese students grabbed a Bible, and they both gave a Bible to each of the Japanese students, and then they showed them, well, this is, this is how you find chapter, this is how you find a verse, and, and this is where we are in Genesis. So they're, they're showing them and, and thumbing through. And one of the Chinese students who had been with us for three weeks, he, he said, you've missed a lot, but let me tell you about Genesis uh, 3.15, where in the beginning God promises to redeem through the offspring of the woman our relationship with God so that we could know him. And I mean, it just floored me. I didn't expect to be caught emotionally to see that taking place. Um, I had just finished the book, Unbroken, about uh, Louis Zamperini, a World War II vet, and it had highlighted all of the tensions of the World War II era, which today, 73 years ago today, we were at war. And there in that room, with the gospel, we were together. Um, I didn't sense the hostility or the tension. And it just reminded me that only in Christ will all men and women be one. So I wanted to share that with you. That was an encouragement um, for me this semester in the, in the international student ministry we do. Now to go on to something a little, um, a little less serious and uh, a little more silly. I wanted to tell you a story about two Virginia farmers. Um, they're walking in the woods one day, and one of them found a big hole in the ground. He said, man, that hole is deep. They looked down in the hole. They couldn't see the bottom of it. And, and they started looking for, for things to throw down in the hole. They threw a couple of rocks. They couldn't even hear it hit the bottom. Finally, one of the farmers said, look, there's an old anvil. So he picked up a big old anvil and carried it over to this dark hole, and he just dropped it in. And they're sitting over there, leaning over the hole. And they can't, 
They don't hear it hit the bottom. And pretty soon, from behind them, comes running as fast as it can is a goat. And this goat takes a headlong dive straight down the hole and disappears. They're like, man, have you ever seen anything like that? What is this? Another farmer comes up. He said, hey, you boys seen my goat? I'm missing my goat. They said, yeah, we just saw it. He just jumped down this hole right here. He said, well, that's impossible because I didn't even chained to my anvil. <laughs> so I wanted to share that silly joke with you um, because it really only works if I don't tell you the full story at the beginning. I've got to leave some information out, like the goat is chained to the anvil. Uh, the, the topic I'm going to share with you today, um, by God's grace, is something that um, the Lord has been working on my heart for a while in terms of hospitality, um, in terms of meals and food, and in terms of how our Lord um, accomplished his mission. And so, you may come away with this thinking that that guy thinks that the whole Bible is about nothing but food and eating. And that's obviously, that's not the case. But I want to emphasize something that I think uh, our church in America needs, needs to relook at. And so, let me read, uh, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 33 to 50. Let me read God's word, and then we'll pray together. And if you wouldn't mind, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter 7, verse For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. 
The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning because we are in need of your truth. We are in need of remembering your beautiful Son, Jesus, and all that he has done for us. Father, I I confess I need your spirit to teach this morning. Um, My opinion needs to be quickly forgotten as soon as we leave these doors. We ask that your truth would be remembered and that, Lord, you would change us in the way that you see fit, in the way that brings you glory. And not the name of a church or individuals in a church, but you. And we desire to see Jesus Christ. So, Father, I ask that your spirit would do that. Help me in the midst of my um, confusing thoughts. I pray they come out clear. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And please be seated. I'll, I'll spare you the, I guess you could call it the, uh, the shame I, I felt when I was asked uh, a certain question, having gone to seminary and being an ordained minister. Of course, this was, this was brought up by my director, uh, who was, was teaching about hospitality, and he asked a question to us all, and he said, I want you to see how you can answer this. You basically have the answer in front of you, so you get to be spared. He said, I want you to complete the sentence. The Son of Man came. Oh, that's easy. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Is there a third one? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. What? And they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And we could look at those, those first two statements, and I've been able to, to read different books on hospitality, uh, Making Room by Christine Pohl, and A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester, and Um, different authors, a lot of those have helped me see this, but um, I had to stop and think and think about that. The first two, the first two, the Son of Man, well first of all, who who is the Son of Man? That's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It refers back to Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days presides over all of creation, he's the ruler of all, and there's one, the Son of Man, who will be used to bring all of the nations, every tribe and tongue, underneath his rule the Son of Man, of Daniel 7, under his dominion. And so the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We could say that's one, one of the reasons he came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another reason our Lord Jesus came, I think we would all easily agree with. But perhaps this third, the Son of Man came eating and drinking we could say, well, how, how is the Lord, in what way is he going to accomplish this purpose? Eating and drinking. I want to say, seriously? 
I think this was exactly the same kind of surprise that the people of the day had when Jesus did a lot of eating and drinking. That's why they gave him the label. He's a drunk. He's a glutton. I mean, Jesus, I don't think you can argue against the fact that Jesus seriously liked eating, and he liked drinking. He would attend uh, many parties, of which we've read this morning, where you would have a, a, a three-sided table. Guests would be reclined around three sides of the table. The fourth side of the table would be open so that the servants could come. You'd lie at the table in a position where your legs were somewhat behind you. There'd be pitcher of wine. There'd be bread. You dip your bread. And so there was a lot of eating and drinking. There was discussions that went on long into the night. And we see Jesus in many instances, especially in Luke's gospel, of meals. In fact, one, one commentator has said, you, you can somewhat argue that Jesus is either on his way to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's just left a meal. There's a lot of food going on. There's a lot of um, intimacy over table fellowship. It's a picture our Lord loves to use. Do I even have to make the case? The Lord's Supper? He chose that to show us that we've been brought close to table fellowship. This culture um, at this time emphasized so much more than, than we do, something that I think we've lost. The intimacy of being with strangers and friends at a table, they're no longer strangers and friends. They, they become family when you share a meal. And of course, we're going we're to look more deeply at this story of how Jesus welcomes sinners to the table. But why is it that maybe we've lost this idea of, of table fellowship? And I could spend a lot of time talking about this, and you, you can spend your time on your own thinking about this, but I, I feel like in some ways our culture really has capitulated to convenience and comfort, so much so that even the church has given up the idea of real biblical hospitality. Um, and, and you've seen this too, and, and I'm going to share something with you that I mean we've, we've done, we're guilty of. I'm not here to stand as someone who's achieved better. I couldn't tell you how many times Amy and I will go out for a date, we will be at a restaurant, and next to us is a family. The father's on the iPad, the mother's on the iPhone, both kids are on the iPhones. Not a word is said. Except maybe when they order. I see that all the time. Um, there's just see, so much separation between, it's so hard to have a real conversation, it seems like. There's one of the college students this week told me that, um, that a lot of his friends have a hard time having conversations. And so they go to a website which teaches you how to have small talk. We're, we're so compartmentalized, we don't really have time to sit down 
and have a meal. And, and there's something beautiful about this period of time. I mean, that's what they did. They didn't have the iPhone to give to their kids or, or use themselves. They didn't, they didn't have those technological advances, um, by the way, of which I've heard that Apple employees don't even let their own kids use them. should tell you something. Um, but it's, they're just so isolating. And a meal slows things down. When you have to sit across from someone at a meal, you've got to talk. There's no way around it, unless you have an iPhone. But you've got to talk, you've got to share, you've got to do life with the person. And, and I see Jesus using this. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I mean, that's the most simple mission strategy I think I've ever heard. I've read books, and I'm not discrediting the value of the books. Books on mission strategy, books on um, uh, positioning yourself, books on uh, apologetics, um, how to explain things, being culturally sensitive, all these things, and they're, and they're valuable because there comes a time when you are called to give a reason for the hope you have, First Peter. But this is so simple. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I mean, it really brings things down. Um, you don't need a seminary degree to do that. Everybody, just about, unless you have a physical ailment or some reason, you can eat and drink. And you can do it with someone you don't know. And I'm not trying to make a meal a sacrament. The Lord has established what our sacraments are. It's very clear on that. I'm just trying to emphasize something I think we've lost. What would it be like if the Lord's church opened their homes and ate and drank regularly with sinners? What would happen? Let's look at a couple of reasons I think it's, it's hard, because it's hard for me. Um, let's look at the story here of Simon the Pharisee. I think he can teach us some things. So Jesus is at this dinner. He's been invited. And he goes to the Pharisee's house, reclines at the table. And so when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. So we're told it's a woman who's lived a sinful life. At best we know, we think, if someone who has lived a sinful life and is publicly known that she's lived a sinful life, then it's probably, she's probably a prostitute. That's what a lot of commentators say. We, we think that's what's being implied. She finds out that Jesus is eating at this Pharisee's house, and she's obviously heard Jesus teach before. There has to have been, it makes you think at least, there has to have been some contact. She's, she's seeking him out. She's heard something, and probably she's heard about there's forgiveness. There's, you can be cleansed. Um, and she is seeking him out. She comes to this dinner, and, and in this day, the houses were, were different. You had your private dining area, but everything was still pretty open. You had a semi-public area in a house. You even had a public area in the houses back then. So even the poor could come by and they could possibly even listen in on the conversation and hope for maybe a crust of bread after the dinner. And so more than likely, she was waiting in this semi-public area of the house. 
waiting for her time to come in. She comes in, bringing an alabaster jar of perfume, and so she's behind Jesus, and like I said, the way they would recline, their, their feet would somehow um, go behind them. And so she begins to, uh, to take this alabaster jar and, of perfume, and she, she wets his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and kisses them and pours perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisees at this point, they, they felt like the land had been polluted. It was polluted by the Romans. It had been desecrated. And they couldn't control that. They couldn't stop that. But what they could control was what happened in their own home. And if they could have ritual purity, if they could have cleanliness on the inside, and not be contaminated with those who they deemed as sinful on the outside or inappropriate, then they could quicken the reclamation of their land, and somehow God would honor this. And so this is kind of this, this idea that, that he's, he's working with. And so there's a sense that there's those who are different, we don't want to be contaminated with, we don't want to, we don't want to let them in. You know, I, I think about this, and I'm like, is this, do we really do this uh, today? Do we really isolate some people and think, I don't want to be contaminated with them. You know, we could talk about the, the, the current issues of the time. Ferguson, New York. Um, we could look at it in terms of, of race, but, but, but even, if, even if we don't look at it that, I, I have to look at my own, my own heart and, and say, you know, I, I really just like, honestly, it's easier for me to be with people that are more like me. And initially I want to say, well, it's not because I'm better than them, but it's just I'm just more comfortable with the way I do things. But behind that, there has to be some sense of the way I do things is somewhat better or superior to the way that they do things. And whether I, I overtly say it or not, I've I rationalized in my mind the reason... Well, I just—it's okay to stay with the people who are like me. And and Simon has done this in a much stronger, more overt way. Um, this woman is seen as being unclean, and he doesn't want to be corrupted by her. And so they've they've come up with a whole system and rationalizations as to why you don't do it. And they've, um, in their mind, they put God's sanction behind it. God is wanting us to do it this way. And Jesus is here to turn that upside down. The same way he came as a little baby, which turning everything upside down, and we remember that this time of year. He comes to this dinner party and he redefines for Simon what righteousness really is. Simon thinks he can keep himself clean. He can be with the right people, be with the right influences. Jesus says, that's not what makes you clean. We see in, in stories before this story and afterward that Jesus, um, he, he touches the dead, which that's, you don't do that. 
back then because he's getting ready to raise them to life. Instead of the dead making Jesus' own queen, he makes them clean. So Jesus isn't being contaminated. He is making those that he touches and influences clean. But Simon is being taught a lesson of, of what real righteousness is. I was, I was thinking of having a, a, a meal with a student and just to, you know, cultural differences are, are, are very different. And it's, it's hard not to say, you know, that's just different and not to think that's just wrong. Um, and want to stay in my own little comfortable pocket of people. Uh, I had lunch with a student and uh, at a restaurant of, of his choice uh, to try to give him a meal that was something like back home. So he got a big bowl of uh, looked like soup full of red chilies, like red chili was all in the soup. It was a bright red soup. In the middle of the soup was this block of gelatinous, dark purple, black chunk <laughs> sticking up out of this like a volcano. And I said, what is that? And he said, it's a soup with bud. And I said, bud? He said, yes, cow bud. And I, and I watched it. It started to kind of melt into the... I said, blood? Yes, 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 blood. Cow blood. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. He said, would you like some? I said, no, I'm very full. <laughs> I, I mean, it's... I mean, we have to admit, it's, it's very difficult um, to come together on, on some things. It's much more comfortable to keep things the way they are and to be with people we're, we're more comfortable with. But, but here we have Jesus breaking all of the rules of his time, um, all of the taboos of his time, by not sending this woman away. And he very easily... I, I, I'd like to say, I think I, think I would have done this um, I think I would have said, um, ma'am or miss, uh, now is not the appropriate time. If you'll wait outside, when the dinner is over, I'll, I'll be happy to come speak with you. Now, our Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't do anything. He's passive. He allows her to continue to wipe his feet with her tears. And that speaks volumes. He's allowing a sinner to touch him. He's allowing a sinner to break up the rules of this Pharisee's home. And he's bringing out in the heart of Simon what's really going on in Simon's heart. Don't, don't problem people do that for us? We find coming up in our heart what's really going on in our attitudes we may not show it outwardly because we know that's not right but we, we feel it, we think it so this goes this goes on Simon has a meal where he wants to exclude people instead of include people so in his heart he accuses Jesus of knowing, of not knowing excuse me, who this woman really was and Jesus doesn't defend himself. That's what I think is, is neat. He doesn't defend himself. He, 
he actually tells a story. In a sense, he defends the woman. So Jesus tells this story. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? So Jesus is trying to explain, and he is teaching Simon, that this woman loves much, because she has had much forgiven. And she knows that in the Savior, in Jesus, she is cleansed and free. She loves him. You can see she loves him. She doesn't care what kind of social stigma is going to happen to her in the midst of this party. She breaks in on it. That's unacceptable. She loves him that much because she's been forgiven much. Then Jesus really brings it to Simon. He says, look, you're the host. This is what he's saying. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your house. That's the comparison. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You're the host. Now, in our day, we have people over, you know, what do we greet them at the door? We shake their hand and offer them something to drink. I, I guess that's about it. Just to have a seat. Back then, you would you'd offer them water uh, for cleansing. You would um, uh, anoint them with oil. You would give them a kiss of welcome. That was their, their custom. So Jesus says, I came into your house. You're the host. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You can give me a kiss, but, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Simon is the host who's not really a host. And the woman is a host of Jesus. And she's not really even a guest. Everything about Simon is being turned upside down for what it really is. Jesus has not only accepted a sinner in his midst, that God accepts sinners and tax collectors and is willing to share table fellowship with them, which shows intimacy. But... Jesus is welcomed by sinners. Simon doesn't realize how much of a sinner he is. And so he doesn't welcome Jesus. He has Jesus because it's good for his reputation, I guess. Maybe it's a, uh, you know, something you do, have a circuit of dinner guests come through. That's what you're called to do. And Jesus is maybe a curiosity he wanted to have. But he doesn't even treat him well. Yet Jesus is welcomed by sinners. He welcomes sinners and he is welcomed by them. You know, the, the, I guess the, the struggle I have, I try to think of different reasons. Um, I'm not that good at really welcoming people into my life. It's something I, by God's grace, I really have to work at. 
i was sitting with a student at a campus who wanted to practice english and he's from the middle east and he's leaving in a month to go and be a, a journalist for the competing news agency to al jazeera and he wanted to work on his higher english skills as he said i thought his english was pretty good but he really wanted to work on some difficult words um, like reckoned. He said, what does the word reckoned mean? <laughs> but anyway, we started to talk and, and I, I had asked Amy before I'd met with him two or three times and we kind of came up with a couple of dates and I said, maybe I could have, we can invite him and his family. They have a little girl. We'll invite him for dinner. So we were talking. I said, by the way, but before I forget, I said, my wife and I would love to have you come to our home for dinner before you leave, you and your, your wife and your little girl. And, and he, was, he was eating, and he kind of stopped, and he looked up at me, and he goes, you're not American. And I thought, what? I am American, I'm thinking. What do you mean I'm not American? I said, well, well I composed myself. What, what, do you, what do you mean by that? And he said, Americans don't invite people into their homes. I said, how long have you been here? He said, two and a half years. I said, I said, can I ask, why, why do you say that? Just your observation. And he said, he said, I can't think of this word. He says, I've heard this idiom. Your home is your castle? castle? I said, our home is our castle? He said, yes, your home is your castle. And he says, it just seems like the home, that's for you, no one else. You deal with everyone else on the outside, but that's, that's just for you. I thought, wow. Yeah, I, I can confess to that. I like um, to keep uh, my carpet clean. and um, It's bothersome having people come over at times, cleaning up after them, preparing for them. Um, it's, a, it's a hassle. And it, it is kind of nice to have my own little retreat, um, my TV, wherever I can stay isolated and we can just be with our family. But then he went on. I said, I said what, else, what else have you noticed um, about Americans? And he said, he said, you walk differently. I said, what? He said, you walk like you have something to do all the time. You're very purposeful. And I said, I said what does it look like? And he said, you're, you're walking somewhere. You, you, don't, you don't look to the left or right much. He says, it's very hard to grab your attention. He said, but no, when we do grab your attention, you are very nice, but we have to really do something to shake you out of it. <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess I could see some of that, yeah. And he sa I said, well, how do you guys walk? And he said, oh, we don't, we're purposeless. <laughs> <laughs> he said, we just walk around and we want to, oh, there's a guy, I'll talk to him. Oh, well, I'll talk to him. It was, it was very eye-opening to me. I... I mean, I, the only reason I, I, I struggle with wanting to have people in my life or invite people who are different from me, sinners, into my circle is I'm just selfish, you know? I think we as a church have bought into that cultural idea. Our house is our home, and this is one part of our life, and this is the other, and if anything, I want the Lord, the Lord has to do it. If it's my opinion, it means nothing, but the Lord has to challenge us to open our lives.
what impact can the Lord do through us as we open our lives? And really, what's the motivation to do that? Because, I mean, come on, it's, we don't have a lot of time. We're all very busy. What motivation could we have to really let someone into our life? It's uncomfortable at times. At times, it's great. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to be all down on it. I'm just telling you. At times, it's amazing. Other times, it's bothersome. What's the motivation for that? You know, go back to the beginning of this passage. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus basically ends this. He's, I would say he's, he's more troubled with Simon's heart than he is with the heart of this woman who has found repentance and life in him. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But you go back to how we started this. This, this accusation they gave. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This, this is an allusion back to Deuteronomy. This label, Deuteronomy 21, 21, is a label to what a rebellious son is like. A rebellious son is a drunkard. And he goes about his own way. And a drunkard, a rebellious son, Deuteronomy 21 says, must be stoned. So Luke 7, 34, excuse me, verse 35 says, But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Luke is pointing out, you say, Jesus says, you say, a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, what's the truth? That is the truth. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, Luke doesn't go trying to disprove the fact that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That very next story is all about that. But who is truly the rebellious son? Is Jesus the rebellious son? Is Jesus the one who has lost all control, who is all about himself? No. Israel is the rebellious son. And wisdom will be proved right by her children. Jesus is the one true faithful son of Israel. He's the faithful one. And so when we look at this, I think you and I have to confess today, if we know our heart, we too are rebellious sons and daughters. We are the rebellious ones. If we're even going to begin to welcome people into our homes or have the motivation or the passion to do so, we're going to have to understand grace. And grace not just for those on the outside, but grace for us. We're going to have to see how broken and understand how sinful we really are. We won't love much. We'll love ourselves. And so Jesus, now the rebellious son, labeled the rebellious son, who is really the true and only faithful son, dies the death of a rebellious son. Now he wasn't stoned. But you read two verses later in that same passage in Deuteronomy 21, 
Cursed is every man who is hung on the tree. He dies the death of a rebellious son in the place of the rebellious sons and daughters of Israel, you and me. Because he wanted to secure fellowship with us for eternity. Table fellowship. Eating a meal. The great wedding banquet. Which we all long for. In this season of Advent, we're waiting for the time when Jesus comes back to usher that in. We're longing for that time. When we're finally with him, face to face. Sharing a meal. And he did that for his rebellious children. So I see, I see in this story an encouragement. Um, not, not as something guilty of something we're not doing. Instead, to see how our, our Lord died a perfect death for us, lived a life we couldn't live, where he welcomed in the strangers and the broken and the sinful. And he did that to bring us close. You who were far off have now been brought close by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he loves his church. And he wants us to remember how far off we were so that when we see those who are in our midst, our neighbors, our co-workers, students, who are from different places and who are far off, that we would bring them close and experience the joy of fellowship with them. At the table, strangers become friends. The marginalized are no longer marginalized. And God can use that to give you a reason to share the hope you have in Christ. I really feel like it's what God is moving in our church, in this country, to change our culture. He's awakening us to hospitality and sharing our lives the way he gave his life for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. Lord, thank you that you were willing to spend time and have your own reputation, according to the world, tarnished by spending time with sinners. The world said it was inappropriate. Who has time for that? They'll never amount to anything anyway. Lord, help us not to believe the lies that we've bought into from our culture and we've convinced ourselves of. Lord, you know we are a selfish people. We are a rebellious people, as we've already confessed earlier in the service. We thank you that we have a faithful son who died in our place and lived in our place and has brought us close. Lord, with every meal we have, may we remember our dependence on you because we are dependent. With every meal we have, may we remember your goodness as we taste such wonderful things and may we share it with those who we don't know. 
Lord, by your grace, would you bring us together with our community? I pray you bring Potomac Hills together as a community across the table with one another. I pray you use Potomac Hills, Father, to share their homes and tables with the communities they live in, with their neighbors. Lord, you use resident aliens and foreigners. You bring them into our lives to shake things up, and would you do that? Would you change us? And Father, by your grace, may we repent, and by repentance, may you bring times of refreshing. Lord, we confess we need your help, and we thank you so much for your patient love of us, and that you truly love your church, and you have shown it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.